Okay, uh, we are continuing on the chronological life of Jesus and uh, uh, looking at this, this chronology and following his life through. We're about a year and a half into his life. And uh, let me just clarify something because last week I talked about uh, uh, the different sections of where people went prior to the death of Christ. Uh, uh, so, so we talked about Sheol and Hades being the same thing. That is where the good went. Then there was the bad side. There was, there was the bad side that was separated into three divisions. Uh, 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 Tartarus. Uh, then there was also hell, where people went, and the abyss, where demons went. But I never mentioned what happened after Christ has come and risen from the dead. So some people came up afterward and they wanted some clarity on that. So what happens to the believer now? As soon as a believer dies, the body may be buried in the ground or may be cremated, the spirit instantly goes to be with God in heaven. That is no longer in Sheol or Abaddon, in Sheol or Hades. It is immediately taken up into heaven. Jesus never went to hell to bring anybody up from hell. What he did is it says he went and he took captivity captive. This was from the good side, Sheol and Hades, that he took the good. Those who, Jesus said, it was in the bosom of Abraham or paradise. That was the two words that were used, synonymous words. Jesus used both of those words uh, to describe where they were. The rabbis used the bosom of Abraham. And he took them up. The ones that were in hell, he never took them up. Uh, And that is a temporary holding place, as we said, until they go into the lake of fire. But just an assurance that if you are in Christ, or if you have a friend or family member who is in Christ, if you perish instantly, your soul is instantly with God, and one day God will raise up your body as well. And you say, well, what if the body's been cremated? Look, he made it once before, he will make it again. The atoms are all still there. They really are. The atoms are all still there, and... The great chemist can put this back together, just as he did one time before. Okay, so let, let's look at the next portion. This is in, we're going to pick it up in, in Mark, chapter 5, verse 21. <clears throat> so three of the Gospels record these events. Three of the four Gospels are recording this event. Uh, I think Mark spends the most time on it, so we'll look at it in Mark. Uh, we'll focus in in Mark. So Mark, chapter 5. Now this is, we have just come to the end of that very long day. So remember, just before uh, uh, the, the unpardonable sin, uh, Jesus had healed a man who uh, uh, had healed a man of a demon who was also mute. And be, then there was the unpardonable sin, all the proclamations, all the, the parables that Jesus gave, the going across the lake, the storm on the lake, the healing of the Gadarene demoniac. All of that was one day. And now they've come back, so now this is when they come back to the other side. That, that day is over, and we're probably the next day uh, coming across the, the lake now. And it says in chapter 5, verse 21 of Mark, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, came Jairus, by name. And when he saw him, He fell at his feet and he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. So it actually says, if you look at at the passage, there's a passage in, in Matthew about this. There's a passage in Luke. It says that when he came back across to the other side, the multitude was waiting for him. So he could not have been gone long. 
So they come back the next day. The multitude is still there. He comes back across, and it says that that, uh, uh, they were waiting for him on the other side. One of the rulers of the synagogue came to him, Jairus by name. This is very interesting that the Bible picks out lots and lots of names, filled with names. Generally, when you tell stories, you don't put lots of names of people. You may have known someone who's telling you a story about something that went on. And they say, oh, this friend of mine, so-and-so, did this. And so-and-so's friend was this, had this name. And then, as soon as they go beyond two or three names in a story, you begin to get them all mixed up. And, and you, you may know from uh, uh, books that you read, sometimes at the beginning of a book, they'll give you everybody's name and what their role is. Because when there's lots of names, you just get so confused. The Bible fills you with names of people. And the Bible does this because it's going to check it's, it's so that you can go back and verify and check anybody you want and verify who this is. And it says, Jairus was a leader in the synagogue. A leader in the synagogue. This is important. This is an important fact. This is why the Bible pulls this out. He was a leader in the synagogue. And uh, uh, because, remember, many of the leadership were against Jesus. Some believed, and this was one of the leadership. But... What drove him to Jesus was that his daughter was on death's door. She was about to die. And what happens is, sometimes we can start thinking that we're really something or another, and, and that you know we don't need the church, we don't need this, and things happen in life. And I'll tell you, when things happen in life and pain starts to come, you will be very thankful if you are part of a body of Christ to stand with you. When I was doing my postdoc uh, uh, Sabrina was born, and about a week after she was born, she became very ill. And in fact, we were taking our first daughter to the, to the, the pediatrician just for a routine exam, and the pediatrician looked over at our newborn and said, something is wrong with that child, and just picked her up, and you know, she was really limp, and you know, we, we just didn't worry too much about the kids, and this, this girl, and immediately she was put in the hospital. They thought she had uh, uh, spinal meningitis which it ended up she didn't have. They didn't know what it was. And uh, she was in the hospital for over a week. It's a brand new born baby. And here I was, just a postdoc, just had finished my PhD. And, uh, um, you know, what it was the first thing that I did. I called up the leadership in the church. And they just came, started coming over. They started filling up in the hospital and praying for this little girl. And a week later, I mean, she just recovered. I mean, she was just all better. But I'll tell you, we called upon the body of Christ. There was another time that Shireen became ill and the body of Christ just came around us. This man was driven to Jesus by the sickness of his daughter. You will be thankful one day for the body of Christ. And this is why it's important to be a part. Maybe you don't need the body of Christ right now. But the body of Christ needs you. They need you to minister to others. And there will come a time when you will be in dire need of support, of help, and you will be longing for somebody to help you. If you are part of a body of Christ, I'll tell you the things that will happen. People will bring you food. And this is being a part. If you just come each week and you sit down and you, get, you don't get to know anybody, they hardly know you exist. But as you give of yourself, there is plenty given back to you. I have seen this in my life over and over and over again. You know, my, my, my mother was even pointing out, she said, People do stuff for you all the time. I mean, the last three children of mine that had to have their wisdom teeth pulled, I paid nothing. Because I met an oral surgeon here, and you know, I, 
and I shared, and he said, oh, I'll pull your kid's teeth for you. And so he pulled them, and then another friend of mine in the church was an oral surgeon, and we got to be friends, and I'd minister in his home. And so when the two more kids needed their teeth pulled, I mean, this is thousands and thousands of dollars. The body of Christ is a great thing to have. You need a job? Start serving in the body of Christ. Someone will recognize your talents. Many people own businesses, and they will hire you. This is the best way to have, ha, have something back in life. And you may think, well, I don't need anything right now. One day you will. One day you will be in need. This man was in need. His name was Jairus, and the Bible documents this to name him so that people can go back and check. Was it true? And his daughter was ill, and it says he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. He says, come to my house, touch her, lay your hand on her. He specifically says, uh, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her, that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him. So this man's faith went to the point of saying, if you touch her, she will be healed and live. He didn't have enough faith, like the centurion said, don't even bother coming to my house. You don't even have to. Just speak the word and my servant will be better. He needed Jesus to touch his daughter. That's what he needed. to. That's the level of his faith. And Jesus said, okay. Jesus didn't rebuke him and say, well, you know, I don't even have to go to your house. I could just speak the word. If you had faith, I'd have done it. But because you didn't have that much faith, I'm out of here. No, he didn't do that. He went and he ministered according to the level where his faith was. He said, okay, you want me to lay my hands on her? I'll do it. So now he's on the way. But it says that the multitude thronged him. And from what I've read, this word thronged him is a very intense word. So there's multitudes just pressing in on him. It's not like, you know, people around, hey, how you doing? I mean, it's people everywhere around him. And he's trying to walk and it's hard to walk. You go to India. Once I, in 1998, I ministered in India to 5,000 youth. Uh, and it was a small youth conference in India, and 5,000 Christian youth. And, and so I was the speaker from the United States, and when I would walk, I mean, they'd just be constantly around me, and the, and the people who were with me were just kind of trying to make a way for me to walk. I wasn't used to this type of thing. Can you imagine what they were doing with Jesus? And it says in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of blood of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you? And you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing that what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So it's interesting, in, in, Ma- in Mark... Mark points out that this woman had spent everything she had on physicians. Luke points out the same thing. But what's Luke's occupation? Anybody know Luke's occupation? Physician, a doctor, right. What Luke doesn't record is what Mark recorded in verse 26, and she had suffered many things from many physicians. Luke, as a professional courtesy, doesn't 
mentioned that part of it. <laughs> he mentioned it. And, and it, it was just interesting the, the way you see the humanness of the writers even here. And uh, uh, she suffered many things. And I've read the things that physicians would do in that day if a woman had an issue of blood. I mean, these things that she would do, the things that they would make her drink, and they'd, they'd come up and, uh, behind her, try to shock her, try to scare her. And, and uh, so what she had had to endure. Twelve years she was in this affliction. And interestingly enough, that girl of Jairus, it says later on in this chapter, and it mentions it also in Luke, that she was 12 years old. So for the same lifetime of this girl who was sick, this woman had an issue of blood. Now, in the Old Testament, if a woman was in her menstrual cycle, had that issue of blood, she was unclean in that period. She wasn't supposed to touch anyone. If a person had an issue of blood constantly as this woman, she was deemed unclean. If this woman's issue of blood had started, say, in puberty, she would be either unmarried, or if she had been married, she would be divorced by now. We have no reference to a husband. She had spent everything she had. A woman was totally dependent upon their husband in that generation, in that culture. And so here she was, separated from society because she wasn't allowed to touch anyone. So she was deemed unclean. So for 12 years, she could have no dealings with society. If she had been married, she was divorced at this time. Or she was unable to be married. People only lived to be generally into their 40s. That was the general age in, in that generation. So most of her life now is consumed. This is the state of this woman. And here she's pushing through, the, through this crowd, which she's not supposed to do. She is supposed to announce herself as being unclean and unable to be in a crowd like that. But she knew, this is my only hope. This is the state of this woman. Here is a woman that is separated from society. I want you to remember that because I want you to see how Jesus responds to this person who has been shunned for 12 years. Remember, if we're shunned for 12 seconds by a group, you know, we're just so beat up and just the whole world is against me. Everybody hates me because for 12 seconds they weren't nice to me. 12 years, this woman has been shunned by society. <clears throat> and she said, it says she had a flow of blood for 12 years in verse 25, suffered many things. And then um, in verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. How far did her faith go? I can't do this at a distance. I've got to touch his clothes. She knew she was not allowed to touch him. She could not make him ceremonially unclean, but I had to touch his clothes. The, uh, Luke says she touched the fringe of his garment. If you look at Orthodox Jews today, you will see tassels hanging from the sides of their clothes. That is mandated to them under the law of Moses. Jesus had the tassels hanging from his clothes. All she had to do was touch those tassels. Just It says the edge of his garment. The edge of their garment always had the tassel. Just touch the tassel, she thought. And I will be made well. You see the level of her faith? Immediately, in verse 29, the flow of blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was made well and healed, healed of her affliction. Jesus, immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And then the disciples are shocked. I mean, like everybody <laughs> touching their clothes? But he knew something was different. And the woman, it says, was fearing and trembling. 
And she came, she fell down before him, and she told him, I touch your clothes. I am sick. I have an issue of blood. She told him, it says, the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, look at that word. He didn't call her woman. He said to her, my daughter. You know, my, my younger daughter, I'll say to her, baby girl. And, when I, and she's 25 years old. And when I say to her, baby girl, I can just see her eyes. She knows everything is good. Because she's a high-maintenance little girl. And her dad has to do everything for her. And when I say, baby girl, she knows it's okay. This is what he says to her. He says, daughter, this is a woman for 12 years shunned by society. He didn't turn around and say, how dare you touch me? You know you're not supposed to do that. The law of Moses says you're not supposed to get near me. And here you touch my clothing. I've got to you know, get this thing dry clean. You know, he doesn't do that. He says, daughter, daughter. I mean, look at the love. I mean, she has never been called daughter for years. There's no reference to her having a father. Here. He reaches out to her. This is the state of our Jesus. This is the Jesus whom we worship. This is the Jesus whom we have. In our time of desperation, He speaks to us the most affectionate name that He knows that He can do. He says to her, Daughter, Then he says, your faith has made you well. In other words, it wasn't the touch. It was your faith. Your faith has made you well. So remember, after the unpardonable sin, there was a prerequisite of faith for healing. Prior to the unpardonable sin, we see many people healed without any faith. Now, he said, it's going to need faith. He said, your faith has made you well. Then he says, he didn't just stop there. He said, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Go in peace, and be healed of your affliction. You know, just looking at the, look at the words that he says. And then if you, and you don't have to turn here, but let me read it to you. In Luke chapter 8, verse 48, he says to her, this is how Luke records it, Daughter, be of good cheer, for your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be of good cheer. He says, I want you to be happy. You have lived in misery for 12 years. I want you to be happy. Our God proclaims upon us cheer. Be of good cheer. I don't like to see you saddened. When my kids are walking around sad, it hurts me. I don't want them to be like this. I want to take their sadness upon me and let them have my joy. You know, my daughter called me the other day and she was really excited about something. She was so happy. I said, you're really happy now. She said, yeah, I really am. I said, is this going to last for what, 12 hours? Because, <laughs> you, know, you know, every day she calls me and it's not, it's mostly something that, that I need to do for her. And I said, I want you in the morning to wake up and just start whistling zippity-doo-dah. I want you to be happy because when you're happy, it makes me happy. And this is what Jesus said. He says, be of good cheer. He says, my daughter, I want you to be happy. I want to focus in on another thought on this. Jesus said in Mark chapter 5, verse 30, it says, And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him. That's an interesting verse. 
In, in, in uh, Luke 8.46, Jesus put, uh, Luke records it this way. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived power going out of me. Prior to the unpardonable sin, we never see power draining out of Jesus. Why? Because he's not training anybody. He was going to set up the Messianic kingdom. Now the mystery kingdom has come. He's teaching the disciples how you're going to be ministering. And he now says, you know, when I perform healing like this, power goes out of me. He didn't have to say that. He could have said, I'm not going to tell anybody power went out of me. I didn't want them to think that anything's draining out of me. Now, that doesn't stop him from having a continuous flow from his father. But still, he uses these words. Power went out of Jesus into this woman. He is teaching the disciples now how to minister. What is the message here? When you minister, power will go out of you. You may be well-drained. You go teach a Bible study and sometimes it will take a lot out of you. You go serve in some capacity. And you may say, you know, this was really tiring. Power goes out of you. You minister to somebody. You you speak to a couple who's having marital trouble. You spend some time with them, talking to them. After that 30 minutes, you walk away like, whoa, I'm just trained. You spend some time ministering and teaching and speaking, praying for people. And it can wear you out. And Jesus is saying, this is natural. It happens to me too, Jesus says. Power has gone out of you. Very often after people have had a spiritual high where they've really ministered, the next day or for the next week, they're depressed. This happens a lot. We see the same pattern with Elijah. You know, it's a powerful time. And then went right into depression. Very common. So if you have, you know, some spiritual high where where some great worship service you were part of, pouring out yourself for the Lord or ministry time, just remember this thing of... You know, going down into depression and feeling just totally spiritually wiped out after you were ministering to so many other people. This is not unnatural. It's actually quite natural. Jesus said, power went out of me. She just touched me and power went out. Imagine if you've ministered for 30 minutes or an hour. How much power is going to go out of you? Go to the fountain of life and receive more. If any man is thirsty, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. And as the Scriptures have said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, Jesus said. You go back to Jesus and get filled more. But this is natural. When you serve, you pour out of yourself. Let's turn to John chapter 12 and we're going to close after that. John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 23. This is near the end of Jesus' life because remember, John is not written in chronological order. Because it says many people were coming to Jerusalem from all over the world and they want, all over the land and they wanted to see Jesus. They had told Jesus' disciples and so he knew that the end was near. And, and uh, it says in verse 23 of John chapter 12, Jesus answered saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I mean, look at the power of these words. 
He says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls onto the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If you love your life, you will lose it. I have known people who everything was for themselves. Everything was for themselves. And their lives were always empty. You would think that if you did everything for yourself, that your life would be very happy. Because everything you want, you got. Look at movie stars. They got all this money, all this fame, everyone. And they're all on drugs and they're all falling apart. And they can't stay married for more than a month. I mean, everything is falling apart. They have everything. If you just thought of it logically, you would think that if you just take everything for yourself, you should be the most happy. But we know life is just the opposite. Mother Teresa poured out her life and she was always happy and filled. When you pour out your life, you are filled. If you keep everything to yourself, well, you know, I've got to do this for myself, I've got to do this for myself, good. You will never be happy. You will never be happy. It's to the extent that you pour out your life for another that you're happy. This is why we give. This is why we give our money to others, to other needs, to the church, to whatever need there is. You give this because you would think that, oh, the more money you have, the happier you have. No, as you learn to give, it makes you happier. The happiest people I know are givers. They're givers of their time, givers of their resources, givers of their money. They're the happiest people I know. Jesus said, if you learn to give, power is going to drain out of you, but then God gives you more. He gives you more. He gives you more back. You know, you'll get to know an oral surgeon who will pull your wisdom teeth out for you. I mean, you'll be blessed over and over again. Then he says, Whoever loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world keeps it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Remember, Jesus is on his way to the cross. There is a sacrifice involved in service. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my sermon also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You serve, and guess what happens? God is in heaven, and he's looking down, and he says, Did you see that one serving me? Bless him. Honor him. Honor him. I have seen this in my life. My life is a living testimony of God bringing me places and doing through me that I never deserved. Never deserved. People think that my IQ is 70 or 80 points higher than it really is. I get so much more than I ever deserve. You students are so much more talented than me. I can't read music. I can't play any instrument. I mean, Rice students, they all, you know, play in symphonies for lunch. I mean, they... And, and, and you eat calculus for lunch. I didn't take calculus. I didn't take... You know, times were different back then. I took pre-calculus in high school. I took calculus when I first went to college. I mean, my son Ben has taken like three years of calculus and he's not even out of high school yet. I didn't learn about DNA, just learn about it till, till I was in, in high school. I mean, you, you learn about DNA in kindergarten. You know so much more than I do. But God has brought me so far because I know He has interceded on my life. People see me, once in a while, an old friend from elementary school will email me and we'll have this email come and they'll be like, how did you get to where you are? They're just amazed. And I understand their amazement. I really do. God does things with people. 
that learn how to give of themselves. I need help. I need help. I need help with this class. If you are a member of this class, well, what makes you a member? If, this, if you have been here for more than two times, if this is your third time to this class, you are a member. Alright? I need help. I need greeters to stand by that door so that when people are walking in, you smile and you look them in the eye and you shake their hand and you say, my name is Daniela. Hi. Nice to meet you. And you greet people so that when people come here, they feel welcomed. I need people to, to person that table, to man and woman that table, so that you can get these cards made out fast, get people signed and get them moving, get them back over there to, to the table. I need people to watch over that table and, make, and help Mrs. Harrison to get that table set up. I need you to do that. It doesn't cost you any more time. You're already here. So instead of just coming in here and filling your face, you are family now, and you help us to minister to others. All right? You help us to minister to others. And you encourage people so that when you see somebody new come in, you sit next to them. You don't sit with your friends. You sit next to them. That you give something of yourself. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But who knows? Maybe that person you just sit next to because they're new will end up being your spouse. You don't know what blessing you're going to get. You have no idea. You go and befriend them. So many of you have probably seen it in my home. I'm sitting at this table and there's all these new people around. I say, okay, tell me your story. You come from a Christian home? You know, tell me your story, how you came to faith, if you know the Lord. If you don't, tell me about your home. I want to know something. Don't you think I have other things to do? I have one or two other things I, I could be doing. But I want to reach out. I need you to help me in that. That's in addition to anything that you might get plugged in in the church or get plugged in with on, in, on campus, in campus groups, you need to be plugged in somewhere in some role of service. But what you do here isn't even really service. This is just family. Family has to do this. You need to learn to reach out. I need to learn to reach out. And it will make you a better person. Because I learned to minister to others, and I didn't learn this in, in my home. I learned this in the body of Christ. All these good habits I have, I learned in the body of Christ from godly people. They taught me how to greet people. This has helped me so much with my career. So I can be at some American Chemical Society event. I can walk up to anybody and introduce myself and say hi. And, and you say, well, you know, everybody knows you now because you're a great chemist. When I was an assistant professor, people would walk by and I'd have a poster. I'd see some famous chemist and I'd go and I'd grab him by their hand and say, hi, my name is Jim Tua. And I want you to show you my work. And I'd grab every famous chemist that walked by. I'd grab him to show him my chemistry poster. I would do this. And I'd start speaking so fast and tell them through this thing. And I could see them. They'd go from my eyes and they'd look down at my name tag. And then I knew I got them. <laughs> and this is how you get yourself famous. So you, you, you go, you go to, you'll go to these dinner parties at your work. You'll see, you know, the CEO walk in and everybody's afraid to go near them. Because there's a CEO. Go up, walk up, meet them. When I was an assistant professor, the first thing I did when I was on campus is I invited the president and his wife to come over to my house for dinner. We weren't having a big party. Just them, for dinner. My colleagues couldn't believe it. They said, what are you doing? Why don't you start with the department chairman, then go to the dean, then go to the pro... You're going right to the president. I said, sure, why not? Went right to the president. And... uh so then they started giving me the advice. They said, you know, you ought to dress your kids in rags and say, sorry, sorry, this is the best I can afford and what you're giving me. <laughs> or I should, should uh, just 
take food off the kid's plate and put it on the president's plate and say, this is, this is the best we can do. But anyway, so the president came over with his wife and we spent the evening together. You know what he said to me? He said, nobody has ever invited me to their home just for a quiet evening together. You know, he was always invited, you know, Christmas parties, dinner parties. And, and we spent the whole evening together. He became my friend. We were buddies. And here I was just the assistant professor. Where did I learn to do this? In the body of Christ. In the body of Christ. When you learn to reach out, it will bless you even in your career. Remember, I need your help in this class that we learn to give of ourselves. Chuck Oak is going to come in here sometime and he's going to talk about different service things you can go on, different mission trips you can go on over Christmas or spring break or things like that. Get involved. And remember, if you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. And if you think you have no time, you'll have no time. But if you give of yourself to some degree, very rarely do people overextend themselves and and neglect their schoolwork too much. Once in a while it happens. But that's an extreme. I'm preaching to the main line here. And most people do nothing. You need to learn to do something. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you take these young people and they would learn to give in their lives of their time, of their money, of their resources, that they may have blessed lives and so find their lives. Father, I pray that they would not hold on to their lives and so lose it, but they would learn to give up their lives and so find it. Father, I pray for these young people that you would bless them and draw them close to Jesus and particularly... Lord, for the new students who are here in Houston, Father, I pray that you would minister life to them and you show them where you would want them and let them get knit in in the body of Christ, in a community, so in their time of need there would be others there for them. Father, minister life to them, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.